You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. So I'm a big believer in bringing these conversations with all sorts of different types of people to you for free. I believe in uh, all of the work that I'm doing with Rock Candy and on the blog, on the website, my articles. And I want to make sure that you can all continue to get those for free anytime, anywhere. But it is not at all free for me to do this work. In fact, it takes an enormous amount of time and energy and money to produce this show, to run Rock Candy Recordings, to write an article every week. Uh, it's a lot of time and energy. And so if you want to see my work, have a long life, and if you want to support me in my endeavor to make sure that people can get my content for free, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar a month, $5 a month, or $10 a month, about the amount of a cup of coffee uh, or, a, or a, uh, a lunch, you can make sure that my work has a long life. If you love sacred tension, if you wake up every Monday morning looking forward to the show, uh, then please consider becoming a patron. And also just in general, support the small artists you love. We are doing this out of passion, and it is usually hard, difficult, miserable work, but we love it, and it is only sustainable because of people like you direct, uh, supporting us directly. So just in general, if there are small artists you love, please give them your love, give them your money, Give them your support, share them with your friends. All of that means the whole world to us. So go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, I have to thank my most recent patrons. Also, I'm so sorry if I don't mention you. Uh, a lot of these shows are not released chronologically. So if I don't get to your name in this episode, I probably will in a later episode. So for this episode, I have to thank... Todd, Jessica, Lena, Blake, Type 3, Kate, and Saren Mithsarn. Thank you so much. You are my own personal lords and saviors, and I can't do this without you. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Philip Goff, author of Galileo's Error. That is his most recent book to the show. Philip, thanks so much for being on my show today. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. Good to join you. Absolutely. So go ahead and just tell us some about who you are and what you do. 
I am a philosopher from my work at Durham University in the UK. My main area of focus is consciousness. I'm interested in the challenge of understanding how we can fit consciousness into our scientific worldview, our scientific story of the universe. Mm. Um, I defend quite an unusual position, I guess, the, the view panpsychism, which is roughly the, we could talk more about it, but is roughly the view that uh, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. So it sounds kind of wacky, but um, I guess I'm come to think that it, it, it avoids the, the deep difficulties that, that face more traditional mm. options um, on consciousness. And so, you know, it, it turns out, although it sounds a bit wacky, it turns out to be quite an attractive view. So, yeah, so I, I spend a lot of time defending that. I've, um, I do a lot of academic work, I guess published over 40 academic articles and, and an academic book I published uh, in 2017 on this topic called Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. But then more recently, I've been trying to do what, a, what a, not a lot of academic philosophers do do, which is trying to reach out to a broader audience and writing a lot of popular articles, trying to communicate these ideas in you know in a more accessible format and and so my my more recent book galileo's error foundations for a new science of consciousness is really trying to trying to put these ideas in a very very accessible form so you, you know you don't have to have any philosophical background or uh yeah that's fabulous that's so so and that is me what you were describing kind of the general audience i'm fascinated by this stuff i'm fascinated right. by kind of science and philosophy of mind and consciousness i'm i'm into all kinds i'm i'm into all that stuff i think it's fascinating but i'm also very much not an academic so your book is very accessible for example it has pictures which i really appreciated that's very nice for Fantastic. For, <laughs> for people like my, me my wife did the pictures actually oh <laughs> fabulous well thank they're, they're sort of self-portraits i got Excellent. the contract from the publisher and it said uh so you will provide the pictures and i was like oh i thought you were gonna do that i can't draw <laughs> i can't do pictures and uh, my wife was on maternity leave and uh, so she um yeah Great. So, yeah. so, so you have pictures for dummies like me who, who dropped out of high school. So, um, yeah. So, so I want to talk to you specifically about panpsychism uh, because it, I feel like it is a convergence of a lot of fascinating issues that are interesting for me, but also are interesting subjects for religion and philosophy in general. This is all stuff that I think anyone who who thinks about religion and the show is very much about religion it's very much about religious experience processing religious trauma uh different kinds of religious perspectives so on and so forth i, I think anyone who thinks about religion has also had to think about this subject so mm -hmm. hold on let me turn on do not disturb so that we don't get interrupted just realized I hadn't done that. So sorry. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's this fascinating cross-section for me of just all sorts of things that I think about. So panpsychism is, oh, and I, and I read your book when it first came out last year. I think, I think it was you. November or 
or October. Um, and, you know, I listened to your interview on Sean Carroll's podcast, Mindscape, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, this is just so fascinating. I, I have to get this book. So I think I got the book like the day it came out. And Fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no problem. I bought it on Kindle and I really enjoyed it. And I've been wanting to talk to you ever since. So I'm so glad that that we're having this conversation there. The, so so panpsychism is kind of an answer to mm. what to some fundamental problems in consciousness or what are perceived as fundamental problems. What are those problems? What what is it trying to? to answer yeah so as I, I i think of the challenges how consciousness fits into our scientific worldview so i mean to make it vivid if you study neuroscience i'm not a neuroscientist but i'm, I'm very interested in neuroscience and try to keep as up to date as i can and when you study neuroscience you learn about neuronal firings and action potentials and uh various kinds of neurotransmitter and calcium chambers uh, and overall a really complicated story of the electrochemical signaling of the brain. Uh, What you won't learn about on the face of it, if you're just learning about the science of the brain, what you won't learn about is things like feelings, experiences, uh, emotions. You won't learn about what it's like to see green or what it's like to taste chocolate. in fact, it seems on the face of it that the, the whole neuroscientific story of the brain could go on in the complete absence of feelings or experiences. All this story of electrochemical signaling seems like that could go on without feelings or experiences at all. Um, and yet we know that obviously that feelings and experiences exist. Nothing is more evident than the reality of one's own experiences, one's own pleasure or visual experiences. And so we face this challenge of how what we know about ourselves from the inside fits together with what science tells us about the brain and the body from the outside. Um, So, you know, there there are a variety of options here, a variety of approaches. I mean, I guess the the traditional ones that I learned when I was an undergraduate philosophy student are, on the one hand, materialism, the hope that we can kind of somehow explain consciousness in terms of that electrochemical signaling. So, you know, we can explain what we know about ourselves from the inside in terms of what science tells us about the brain from the outside. So that's one option, materialism. Uh, I guess that's our conventional scientific approach or closest to it. The other hand, a very traditional option is dualism, the view that consciousness is non-physical outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. Um, but I guess I've come to see that, you know, I just think both of these views have such deep and well-recognized difficulties. Um, and, and that's really where we start to look for alternative possibilities like panpsychism. Yeah. So this is something that I had not thought through very deeply until, uh, I read your book and I, have had moved from just kind of this passive uh oh what were the two categories again there's materialism materialism and dualism dualism okay so you know i i just kind of been a passive dualist but you know being a theistic christian believing that consciousness was was an aspect of soul which was 
kind of separate from the body and the brain and just not knowing how any of that shit worked, but just kind of accepting that as true. And then when I deconverted, I, um, I, I kind of took on a, a more, I, I, I took on more of a passive materialistic approach that, uh, consciousness is something that emerges is an emergent property of material stuff following the laws of physics. And that's that's still kind of my bias. That's still kind of my yeah. home base. Um, I feel like I hold on to it loosely. It's like... I'm a I I have no fucking clue what's actually <laughs> how any of this shit actually works but that's kind of my my limited tentative provisional hypothesis right now. Um but I think what I started to realize reading your book was it's actually quite a quite complicated and I feel like I I've taken both of these positions for granted and didn't really appreciate just how complicated and convoluted they become. So what are the problems with both of these positions? Why why are both of these positions likely wrong? Yeah, well, I mean, maybe I've come through a similar journey to you, really. You know, I, I mean, I initially wanted to be... I've actually... I probably went the other way around. I okay. think when I was an undergraduate student in philosophy, I thought, you know, I wanted to be a materialist because, uh, you know, I thought that was a scientifically credible option. And I came to be disillusioned with that, and as I describe in the book, and then, and I guess I think I was a kind of a closet dualist for a while. I sort of thought that's the only option, but I was kind of a bit, a bit embarrassed about it. And I actually ended up writing my end of, end of end of uh, undergraduate dissertation, arguing that um, you know the problem is just irresolvable, and I went off and tried to do something else, forget about it. Um, but anyway, coming to, to answer your your question, the problem of materialism. Yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a complex debate, but. I suppose that the way I like to introduce it is the problem is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, um, whereas consciousness is an essentially quality-involving, qualitative phenomenon. And I just mean that in the sense that it involves qualities. If you think about the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint, you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, I think you're inevitably going to leave out these qualities and hence leave out consciousness itself. I think consciousness, mm. a conscious experience is essentially defined by these qualities it involves and, you know, one thing I'm, I, I, I try to press in my work, hence the title of the book, is, uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that our conventional materialist approach can't account for consciousness because it was designed to exclude consciousness. So a key moment in the scientific revolution, you know, the, the moment that kicks it all off, really, well, one of the key moments is Galileo's declaration that mathematics is to be the language of the new science. The new science is to have a purely quantitative vocabulary. But Galileo understood quite well, I think, that you can't capture consciousness in these terms. You can't capture the qualities of experience in this quantitative abstract language of mathematics. You can't capture an equation, you know, the, 
the redness of a red experience. So Galileo said, right, what we've got to do, we have to, um, if we want a mathematical science, we've got to put consciousness outside of the domain of science. That's sort of in the soul, that's outside of science. Once we can, we can capture everything else in mathematics. So that's the start of mathematical physics, mm. uh, which has gone incredibly well. But I think what we've forgotten is that it was never supposed to be a complete picture of reality. It's gone so well because Galileo focused it on a very narrow, focused task, capturing the quantitative mathematical features of reality. Mm. Um, and so people, you know, I, I think a, a lot of people, this problem is now taken very seriously, which wasn't always the case. Uh, it used to be a sort of taboo topic for much of the 20th century. It's now taken very seriously. But a lot of people think, oh, you know, we just need to do more neuroscience. You know, look at the great success of physical science, of course, it's one day going to crack this problem. I think that narrative is very powerful in people's minds. And what I'm trying to say is, you're thinking about the history of science in the wrong way. Physi yes, physical science has been so successful, but it's been so successful precisely because it was designed to exclude consciousness. Uh, mm. So it's really not surprising that, um, that we're now facing troubles. Galileo would have predicted this. He never dreamt that, you know, we're supposed to use this purely quantitative tool to capture qualitative consciousness. So, yeah, that, that's, that's roughly the starting point, I think. So, to, so, if I'm understanding you correctly, and to kind of put this into my own words, it, it's almost like the most immediate experiences of our lives, the most intimate yeah. part of what it means to be human, which is to be conscious, to have feelings, to have emotions, to have senses. Um, you know, I'm, I'm drinking this can of LaCroix right now, and there's, and I'm, you know, it's a gorgeous gray day outside my window, and I'm looking out over the Appalachian Mountains, and the experience of that cannot be scientifically quantified in any way is what I'm hearing you say. And it's, it's like there, what, there is no mathematical formula for the emotional response I have to a film, right? Or, or the experience of the emotional response. Yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, sorry. Um, kind of. I mean, yeah, it's, it's good actually. I think you gave a really vivid account of what we're trying to get at here, consciousness, because okay. it's, it's sometimes a little bit of an ambiguous word. Often people hear something like awareness of your own existence. People think of self-consciousness. But all I'm really meaning is any kind of subjective experience. Conscious, your consciousness is just what it's like to be you right now. Right. And, and, and you know, you gave the, your visual, your auditory experience. Um, so I wouldn't, so you said then, you know, we can't quantify it at all. I mean, in, in, not sure. I mean, maybe I can qualify things slightly. I mean, okay. you, you can, there is, you can kind of, there, there is a sort of structure and experience you can quantify. If you take color experience, for example, you can, you can, there's, there's a kind of quantifiable structure there. Think about hue, saturation, and lightness. Colors have these three dimensions, and we can map various colors in this color space, you know, according to these different dimensions. So there is a kind of structure there we can map. Mm. But what I would say is that kind of abstract structure doesn't capture the whole 
quality of the experience. With that, that kind of information, you can't fully capture the, the redness of the red experience. You know, so to see that vividly, you know, a colorblind neuroscientist might learn all this information about the abstract structure of color experience, but she'll never know really the redness of a red experience. You never know what it's mm. like to have a red experience. Uh, there's, there's a wonderful, uh, there's a color scientist, Nut Norby, who she's interested in this stuff, and he, who um, has cones missing from his eyes, so he can only see black and white huh. and gray. And uh, and he describes this. He says, you know, I with all this structure, and he's a color expert, you know, with all, I know about the, such rich information about the structure of experience, and that gives me a kind of abstract template. I can sort of think of it like sounds or something, mm. but... I, I don't really get the, the qualities of experience, so I think I think it's that 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 um, that, 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 that the, the neuroscientific description can never really get at. What I'm left with when I contemplate this stuff, and you know, for example, I last year actually kind of right before reading your book, I read David Bentley Hart's The Experience of God, and. Oh. I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Bentley Hart. Yeah, I'm a little um, bit, yeah. Yeah, I've been super critical of him, but I I also he he also kind of led me into this very profound place of just meditating on the on on being and the mysteries of consciousness. And so whenever I start thinking about this stuff, I'm just left with the utter mysteriousness of reality. And because I'm a non-theist, I, I don't have, you know, God to rely on. Um, I kind, I, I'm kind of a, a materialist in that I believe there's nothing but material stuff generally. But, mm. um, but that doesn't resolve the fundal mysterious, the fundamental mysteriousness that I experience when talking about this stuff. So, yeah. so there's another option that you discuss in your book. Um, and that is dualism. So we've mostly yeah. been talking about materialism. What is dualism and why does that not work? Yeah. So dualism, I mean, it's probably the most popular view of consciousness in human history, but most religions are associated with the form of dualism. So the idea that consciousness is non-physical outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain um, you might identify it with a soul, but actually, I mean, there are contemporary dualists like David Chalmers who are, you know, com you're talking about the mysteriousness of them, are complete atheist naturalists. Uh, they think consciousness is non-physical, but they want to really bring it into the scientific story. So actually, when David Chalmers read an early draft of my book and I was talking about the soul when I talked about dualism. And he said, right, you've got to take that out. Uh, I don't believe in the soul. And, uh, so he thinks, he, he, thinks uh, he, he postulates these special psychophysical laws of nature that uh, govern the relationships between the physical brain and the uh, non-physical consciousness. And he wants to say this is just a completely law-governed, scientific phenomenon you know it's not physical so we have to expand our science but it's still a completely part of the natural world you know i once asked him if he's well i say this in the book actually if he's religious and he said if he has any spiritual views and he said only that the universe is cool so 
Yeah, you know, I can get behind that for he's, sure. Uh, you know, he, he again wanted to be a materialist, and uh, yeah. So, so I mean, look, I, I've got a lot of time for for, for dualism and um, some very interesting work that you know I wouldn't kind of dismiss it off ha- um, out of hand, especially these kind of more naturalistic forms. But I think the problem is, I think maybe the problems are of a more straightforward scientific nature. You know, so so most dualists. Although they think the mind is different from the brain, they think there's a close causal interaction. So, you know, the, uh, you know when the, the, the mind makes a decision to raise the arm, this makes changes in the brain and the arm goes up, you know. So there's uh, like a chain of command. There. Yeah, and the, and the other way as well. So, you okay. know, light bounces off our, our objects, goes in the retina of the eye, makes changes in the brain. That causes visual experiences in, in the the soul or the immaterial mind. Mm. Um, so yeah, so there's a, you know, my, my thoughts in my mind cause my words. So there's a complex interaction there. And I suppose I think like many, many philosophers, you know, if that were the case, if, you know, think about what, what things would be like if that were the case, if there were an immaterial soul impacting on the brain every second of waking life, you know, all the words I'm saying right now is my soul. You know, that would really show up in our brain science, I think. You know, there'd be all sorts of things happening in the brain that had no physical explanation. It would be like there's loads of miracles. Yeah. Or there's a poltergeist playing in the brain. (laughs) I was about to say uh, it would be like it would be like miracles. It would be. Yeah. But we don't really observe that. And so is this what's called the causation Problem. Yeah. What is it called? What is this? It calls um, causation. I guess there's a general issue of mental causation. Okay. A gen- problem of mental causation, and then the, the, a more focused problem starts. On many philosophers think we've got good scientific reason to believe that the physical world forms a causally closed system, mm. in the sense that everything that happens in the physical world has a physical cause. So my Everything I do, the movement of my lips as I talk, you know, my hand movements, it has a complete physical explanation in the brain. This is called the causal closure of the physical or the causal completeness of the physical. And if that's true, and, you know, this is disputed, some people, but some people, you know, a lot of people argue we have scientific reason to believe this. It looks like there's nothing left for consciousness to do, right? If, if everything I do has a physical explanation in my brain, what left is there for consciousness to do? Um, Hmm. and that seems problematic because we surely want to say, you know, my consciousness causes me to do stuff, causes me to act and speak and express my thoughts. And so, yeah, so, I mean, there's, you know, there's ways that David Chalmers kind of says clever things to try and get around this or other dualists say, actually, we don't have scientific reason to accept this causal completeness of the physical. It's just a, it's a, it's a dogma of materialists rather than something we have reason to believe. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a fair point in a sense, because there's, there are no peer reviewed scientific articles arguing for this. So, but some Mm. people think it's something we can, um, you know, as philosophers, we can read out of science in some way. Yeah. So, so, but there are deep prime effect, deep on the face of it, deep difficulties there. So, so basically it sounds like every single solution that we, that we have right now to try to explain what consciousness is and how it fits into our understanding of the world just doesn't work. Or there are some very profound gaps and mysteries uh, in our own 
in our understanding of ourselves. Um, where does panpsychism yeah. fit into this? How does panpsychism right. supposedly fix these problems? Yeah, yeah. So, well, the, the starting point is, um, the starting point of the panpsychist is the idea that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is. Uh, and that seems like a really weird thing to say at first. You know, if you if you learn physics, you know, you seem to learn these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter. But, uh, you know, what philosophers of science have realized is that physics, for all its richness, is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, what it does. Um, physics tells us, for example, that matter has mass and charge and spin. And these properties are completely defined in terms of behavior, things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. This is all about behavior, what stuff does. You know, that's wow. why physics is so incredible, because if you know what stuff does in great detail, you can manipulate it and you can produce incredible technology. That's why physics is so successful. But physics isn't telling us what, about what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of matter, what matter is in and of itself, independently okay. of its behavior. This is, that's the okay, starting stop. point. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let me think about... Okay, so basically what I'm hearing is, so say someone were to ask, what is an atom? Yep. Someone, a, you couldn't actually answer with a... You, you couldn't actually tell that person what an atom is. You mm. could only tell them what it does. Well, I mean, atoms are made up of smaller things. So let's maybe take okay. an electron. So, right, an atom's made up of, um, you know, protons and quarks. And so ultimately we get down to, in most matter, to quarks and electrons. So we got the, you know, the, the electrons spinning around in, in a sense. Okay. Uh, so, you know, so let's think about an electron, right? What does physics tell us about it? So you say to a physicist, What's, what, what's an electron? And the physicist says, uh, well, you know, it, it has ma a certain amount of mass and it's negatively charged. And you say, okay, what's mass? Um, well, mass is characterized in physics in terms of gravitational attraction, right? The more mass something has, the mm. more it, it attracts other massive things and the more it resists acceleration, so the, the, you know, the harder it is to get it to speed up or slow down or change direction. Charge is defined in terms of attraction and repulsion, right? Like things uh, repel, oppos opposites attract, like charges repel. Hmm. Uh, that's it. So, so, and the same is true with um, spin in a slightly more complicated way. And you know, things get a little bit more complicated if you bring in the Higgs boson. But essentially, hmm. all we're learning about is what it does. So to many philosophers, it seems like a reasonably qu reasonable question. Okay, that's what it does, but what is it? But what, what is it is in it? itself? So it's I mean, almost it's like, like a fundamentally different category. So it's like in asking what is something, we can, at, at its most basic level, we can only get what it does and those are two different mm. categories is what i'm hearing you say yeah i sometimes make an analogy to a chess piece you know you might want to if you've got a like a real concrete chess piece on the board and you, you know you might be interested in what it does if it's a bishop it moves diagonally in you know any number of places but then you might want to say okay but what is it is it what is it in it is it made of wood is it made of mm. plastic is it made of metal 
And you seem like you get an answer to that. And, you know, we get an answer in terms of chemistry. Chemistry is defined in terms of physics. But when you get down to the basic properties of physics, you don't find out what they are. You just find out what they do. Okay. So where does, uh, where does panpsychism come into this issue? Good. So, so, so this, you might think, so what the hell has this got to do with consciousness? But, um, well, I mean, the, the reason for the recent resurgence of interest in panpsychism in academic philosophy, you know, it's gone from being something that was kind of laughed at or just ignored to being something that's been taken very seriously in the last eight or 10 years. And um, this is partly due to the, the rediscovery of some really important work from the 1920s by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and, and also the scientist Arthur Eddington, who was the first scientist to confirm Einstein's theory of general relativity. Mm. Um, so I think the genius of these two guys, I sometimes make this bold claim that they did for consciousness in the 1920s what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. Mm. But uh, That is so a very bold claim. Yeah. yeah, I remember you saying that in your book. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you've got to be provocative. But anyway, I think their genius was to bring together this problem that's you know, it's sometimes called the problem of intrinsic natures, that, that physics isn't telling us what matter is, to bring that together with the problem of consciousness and to see that we could give them both a unified solution. So one problem is, you know, we've got, we're looking for a place for consciousness in our scientific story. It doesn't seem to fit anywhere. The other problem is we've got this huge hole in our scientific story that physics just tells us what stuff does, not what it is. So the proposed solution is put consciousness in the hole, right? You, Combine you're looking for them. A place, yeah, you're looking yeah. for a place for consciousness. You've got a hole. Why not try and put consciousness in the hole? So the result that the view is a kind of panpsychism, the view that, but it's, it's important to emphasize it's, it's not, it's panpsychism sort of stripped of any mystical connotations. The idea is there's just matter, maybe particles and fields, but it can be described from two perspectives. So physical science describes it, as it were, from the outside in terms of its behavior, what it does, but matter from the inside, um, matter in terms of its intrinsic nature is constituted of forms of consciousness. So it's a beautifully simple, elegant way of bringing together what we know about ourselves from the inside and what science tells us about the brain from the outside. So that's that's the kind of that's the picture. So it it so it proposes to resolve these problems by saying that the intrinsic nature of say an electron an electron of an electron mm -hmm. is consciousness is con is is that the electron has some kind of intrinsic experience. Mm, good. So the the way I like to put it is I often, often when people hear about panpsychism, they think the view is that the electron has its physical properties like mass, charge, and spin, and also these consciousness properties. But that's just but another that's, kind of dualism, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Okay. I mean, there's um, quite a famous physicist, I've forgotten her name now, uh, Sabina Hossenfelder, is it? Who's who's written this, this criticism of panpsychism uh, but she interprets it in that way. And she thinks, well, if there were these funny extra properties of electrons, uh, you know, we detect them in our physics and we don't, so this view can't be true. But as I've tried to 
uh, argued at length on Twitter. People, this really misunderstands the, the contemporary form of panpsychism. So the view is not that there's the physical properties of the electron and these consciousness properties. The view is the physical properties are forms of consciousness. Mass, spin and charge are forms of consciousness. So physics tells us what mass does, but it doesn't tell us what it is. And mass, the idea is it would be an incredibly, almost unimaginably, probably unimaginably simple form of experience. And then the complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow built up from the uh, the very simple experience of its of the brain's most basic parts. So yeah, that's the kind of picture. So I'm going to get really, really high. I'm going to have to think about that one <laughs> a bit more. But okay, so so this idea. Yeah, and I okay. So I've I've heard you say this not only in interview in other interviews like with Sean Carroll, but also in your book that mass and spin, these fundamental qualities of or these these behaviors of an electron, that those aren't that instead of it being here's an electron, it has physical characteristics which are mass and spin, and then it has a conscious experience instead the consciousness and the mass and spin are one and the same thing yeah exactly okay okay they're, they're different forms of consciousness right what an electron has these different properties mass spin and charge they are on this view three different incredibly simple forms of consciousness so physics tells us what they do so does that so does that mean that it has any kind of self knowledge or reactivity that it is able to 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 know itself is that what we mean by consciousness in the context of an electron? No, and no. It's, okay, and, and this is this is why I guess yeah, it's it's important that the the word consciousness is is such an ambiguous word. Okay, you know, and many people use it to mean something like, yeah, self-awareness or something. And, you know, certainly, I mean, awareness of your own existence is probably not something we would want to say a rabbit has, never mind an electron. That's, you know, mm. that's a very sophisticated, so human experience is an incredibly sophisticated form of experience involving self-awareness. And, you know, it's the result of millions of years of natural selection. Uh, but all I mean by consciousness is just experience. Something okay. is conscious. The, 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 the philosopher Thomas Nagel famously defined it by saying something is conscious if there's something that it's like to be it. And in human beings, experience exists in very complex forms. Uh, you know, in horses, less, much less complex. In mice, less, much less complex. Uh, you know, and you know, do bed maybe bed bugs have some very simple form of experience? Flies, if a flies banging against the window trying to get out. Maybe it has some very simple form of experience. And it seems conceivable, at least, that it, you know, that experience could exist in unimaginably simple forms. Okay, um, so... so okay, so basically what you're saying is this spin, the atom is experienced, or the, the electron is experiencing spin. Therefore, it is yeah, okay. Much. <laughs> I'm just, say, I'm like just trying to parse this. I'm like trying. Okay. Uh, I suppose because you're thinking when you experience something, you're 
you know, there's the thing you're experiencing. Like, is there, but I don't, I mean, I don't think, you know, in, in perceptual experience, we experience something outside of ourselves. You know, I experience the table, but I think not all forms of experience involve experience of something. This is maybe the difference between transitive and intransitive consciousness. Anyway, we don't need technical words, sure. but so, you know, if you think about pain, mm. you know, that pain is a feeling and it's not, or, or feeling of anxiety. Suppose you're feeling anxiety. Mm. It's not obvious you're experiencing something outside of the experience. You're just, it's just a, it's just a form of experience. You so, are, okay, got it, yes. So, so I'm, I'm not saying that, that the, the electron is perceiving things outside of itself. I'm just saying it is having experiences, uh, mass, spin, and charge, so I wouldn't say it's experiencing okay. mass. I would say mass is an, a form of experience it has. I mean, you know, if we want to okay. make it vivid, we, we could think of like mass as a form of like, as like a feeling of pain or something. But of course, that's an incredible, far too complex an experience to, to what we're talking about. But yeah, mass is a form of experience that the electron enjoys. Okay. So, okay. so... Dan, basically the the image that I guess you're painting for me is that there are these tiny minuscule sorts of exper or uh, of of consciousness known as electrons which form atoms which form molecules. So are are tiny forms of consciousness then coming together to build larger form you know superstructures of consciousness that that are more complex and if so then so a human being or or a pig or a dolphin would be like various forms of super consciousness yeah yeah okay. that's the, that, that's the idea so that um yeah and the panpsychist i mean another common misunderstanding the panpsychist needn't think that literally everything is conscious despite the meaning of the word you know pan means everything psyche means mind okay. so literally it means everything has mind but it the basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality perhaps electrons and quarks although you can you can have different interpretations of physics as well that they have incredibly simple experience uh, and and as you say human or animal experience is built up from those simple forms of experience, but they needn't hold that every random combination of particles makes a conscious thing. So panpsychists needn't think this table in front of me is, is conscious. They think that it's made up of things that are conscious, but they needn't think there's experience associated with the table itself as a whole. Um, it could be that there's something pretty special about the kind of arrangements we find in human and animal brains that um, enables them to have their own forms of consciousness over and above the consciousness of their parts. But yeah, that's, that's the basic view. So how do we go about determining whether this idea is true or not? How do we, how do we determine if panpsychism is actually an accurate view of the world? Like what models are yeah. there that can be put forth or, or like, is there any way to test this idea or are there yeah. any models to, to, to kind of rigorously <clears throat> analyze this to determine whether it's, it's true or not? Yeah. Good question. Well, I mean, 
I could give two answers to that, one philosophical and one uh, more scientific. But um, so I, I think that there is a deep philosophical problem at the core of the science of consciousness, and that is that consciousness is unobservable. You can't look inside somebody's head and see their feelings and experiences. Uh, we know about consciousness not through observation or experiment, but just through our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. So I think this really constrains our ability to deal with it experimentally. Um, so, you know, of course, science is, is used to dealing with unobservables, but in all other cases, science postulates unobservables to explain what can be observed. So electrons, for example, are unobservable. You can't directly perceive an electron. But we postulate electrons as part of a complicated theory, the standard, part, the standard model of particle physics, that explains very successfully what we do observe. Right. So we, we okay. postulate things that we can't observe to explain what we can observe. Right. In the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is unobservable. And I think that is that is a completely different kind of issue. So so how do we deal with it scientifically? Um, although what we although we can't perceive it, what we can do is we can ask people. <laughs> you, that's the okay. only way you can gather data for science of consciousness, apart from your own consciousness, right? To find out about other people's consciousness, you ask them. And if you do this when you're scanning their brain, and you say, you know, what are you experiencing when this bit of your brain lights up? Hmm. You, neuroscientists in this way are able to map complicated correlations between various kinds of experience and various kinds of brain activity. And this is really important data for science of consciousness. And, but okay. that, 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 the problem is that's the limit of, because consciousness is unobservable, that's the limit of what we can do experimentally. And that is not, important as it is, that's not itself a theory of consciousness. Because what we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of those correlations. Like why is it yes. that certain kinds of brain activity correlate with certain kinds of experience why should that be so i just i don't think we can answer that experimentally i think at that point we have to turn to philosophy and there are various philosophical proposals for explaining that you know materialism is one dualism is another panpsychism is another and we just have to assess them on their own terms so um you know so some people say as you just said a very common question to me uh, how do we test it? Well, in, in a sense, I don't think we can test it, but I don't think we can test any of these theories, materialism, Judith, the, the neuroscience, some people, and some people think the neuroscience supports materialism, but I think, you know, the neuroscience is neutral on all these options. The neuroscience just gives us correlations between mm -hmm. brain activity and experience. Then we have to turn to philosophy, assess the various options. And as we've discussed, most of them look pretty terrible. Panpsychism sounds kind of crazy, but it avoids, it seems to be the best option there is, the least worst option, if you like. It's like uh, <laughs> Ch Churchill said about democracy, apparently, you know, it's the worst system of government apart from all the others. I kind of think panpsychism is the worst <laughs> theory of consciousness apart from all the others. So, so just finally, I suppose it's, you can't directly test it, 
like any theory of consciousness ultimately, but it's justified, I think, by a kind of inference to the best explanation. You know, we, we know consciousness exists. We need an account of how it fits into our scientific story. And panpsychism looks to be the best option there is. So is it possible that the human mind is just not equipped to handle this stuff? You know, is it is it possible yeah. that we're just, you know, we're evolved to survive and we might not necessarily be evolved to to understand the deepest mysteries of the cosmos. And and is it possible that we just don't have the cognitive structures or capacity to be able to deal with this kind of stuff? In which case, do we just accept mystery? Do we just embrace yeah. agnosticism? And... And so I I love the idea of panpsychism. Why is it preferable? And maybe you aren't saying that it is, but why is it preferable to agnosticism, to just embracing yeah. the fact that I don't know what the fuck is going on at the <laughs> at you know I I wrote an article recently called Satan in the Void, you know, kind of about uh -huh. my my own religious experience within Satanism and, and how a fundamental part of that is Satan. The image of Satan is not so much a, a God, but a guide. He's, um, and he points me personally to embrace just the fundamental mystery of reality and, and to kind mm -hmm. of let go of, um, binding narratives that might protect me from, from just the absolute mysteriousness of the universe and may and and i maybe you aren't saying that that this is preferable to agnosticism maybe it's both maybe we can hold mm -hmm. a theory like materialism slash panpsychism slash dualism in one hand as a potential reality and then on the other hand say uh, ultimately, we don't know what. What are your thoughts on that? What I just yeah, said? that's that, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, so there is an option in the philosophical literature called Mysterianism, probably most famously defended by the philosopher Colin McGinn, who had this paper, "Can we solve the mind-body problem?" Uh, and he argued the answer is no. And um, he speaks really wonderfully about when he decided about he was just so tortured by consciousness, and then he decided that there was this proof that actually we, we couldn't solve the problem of consciousness. And he just had a sort of a great relief and uh, an ability to sort of <laughs> live with himself. And I mean, I can really relate to that. I think that this problem of consciousness really gets in your bones. I don't it know. does. Um, it it I, I, fucks you up. It really does. <laughs> yeah, stay clear. I tried to stay away, but it, you know, dragged me back in. Um, I think, I think Steven Pinker holds something like this view. I, I, I think I, I saw him, give a talk at the, the big consciousness conference when I was in my early graduate career. I think he thinks something like that. You know, you think mm. of, I mean, these, these people who you think of as um, hardcore naturalist atheists are, are all over the place of consciousness. I think, you know, Daniel Dennett has, um, you know, is very much the opposite view to me. He's almost denying the existence of consciousness. Whereas Sam Harris actually is much more on my side of the debate and yeah and, he's Stephen, and you know and his wife annika harris who's, yeah. who's a neuroscientist has i actually i just saw that she wrote an article about panpsychism that yeah. i need to read um 
Yeah, I yeah. have to work on that actually. We, yeah, so we, oh, we, nice. Uh, yeah, we, could we, I? We've had some good conversations. You should, and, you should, uh, you should, you know, just in passing, be like, "Hey, so there's this idiot with a microphone in Western North Carolina who really wants to talk to you about panpsychism." <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You don't need to do that. Um, so um, yeah, um, but yeah, so so I no, I, look, I think. Um, Mysterianism is an option we, we should take seriously. And yeah, look, I mean, who knows what the truth is? I'm not, you know, I defend panpsychism, but, you know, it's not like, uh, I mean, I, I, I give some, philosophers tend to talk about credence rather than belief. So credence being, you know, degrees of belief. Philosophers mm. often, you know, how much credence do you have in this view? So, you know, I, I think panpsychism looks to be the best option. But, you know, I, I mean, I give some credence to all these views, including materialism, for that matter, uh, including the view that consciousness doesn't exist. A fellow panpsychists sometimes get upset with me about this. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my close friend, Keith Frankish, who, who doesn't think consciousness exists. But yeah, but, but OK, why go for panpsychism rather than mysterialism? I mean, why would you go for mystery if you have an explanation? If sure. you, you know, if there's a possible explanation that, you know, so if Einstein said, look, I've got this general relativity theory that, you know, can explain uh, so much about gravity and the things you've got wrong. And you think, OK, but I'd, I'd rather wait and see, you know, but, you know, right. we, I think we, we go with, with the best option there is. Although having said that, I'm, I'm I, I guess I'm sort of open to the possibility that we won't be able to fill in the details of panpsychism. Like, will we ever know what it's like to be a quark? There's a good paper, actually, by someone, Pat Lutus, who's got a paper, What's It Like to Be a Quark? But I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't think we really know, even as Thomas Nagel famously pointed out, we don't really know what it's like to be a bat, because a bat has such a different form of experience from us. And so will we ever know, you know, what it's like to be a fundamental particle or will we be able to, you know, so, I mean, I think we, there's an active panpsychism research program trying to fill in the details, see where we can get to. Hmm. But I think, you know, as, as naturally evolved creatures, it might be that we just can't fill in all of the details. I think we've got lulled into a false sense of security because we've, we've done so well with physical science. But I think, as I've said, it, that it went so well because it was focused on a quite limited task, basically describing the behavior of stuff, constructing mathematical models to describe the behavior of matter, um, we can do that very well. But whether we can, you know, penetrate the intrinsic nature of matter, really understand hmm. uh, the details here, I'm not sure we ever will. But even if we can't, and you know, we can keep trying, but even if we can't, I still think reason, we've got reason to believe to give a lot of credence to panpsychism, the general view, because it, it does seem to be, you know, the best general explanation of, of how consciousness fits in, even if we prove unable to fill in all of the details. Mm. So it kind of sounds like what you're saying is something that um, professional skeptic and debunker Mick West said to me on a recent episode where he said that so he does a lot of work with conspiracy theories and huh? like ufos and aliens and all that kind of stuff and he said something that i really like and that i've been thinking about ever since where he said um instead of saying it is an alien or it isn't an alien you know say something you see say you see something in the sky that looks like a ufo instead of saying it is an alien or it isn't an alien. Instead, make a list of every conceivable possible yeah. thing that it could be. Yeah. 
and you could and he said you can still keep your pet theory on the list you can still keep alien on the list but then re- yeah. rearrange that list in order of what is most likely yeah, yeah. and and so th- i don't know that just what you just said kind of reminds me of that it's like it's like evaluating a a spectrum of plausibility a spectrum of probability uh yeah that, that, that really rings true to me i think i listened to that episode actually i listened to oh great okay awesome uh, that was really interesting um yeah i mean people get so ideological on these matters you know and so you do get uh, the more panpsychism is taken seriously starting to get a lot of anger from some materialists actually, you know, and uh-huh. people get very ideological in this and get, I think people, you know, people talk about religion as a crutch. And of, of course people do get very uh, passionate about religion because it's wrapped up with our identity. But I also think a certain kind of scientific materialism, um, people get, that gets wrapped up in people's identity and, you know, it starts to become, I agree with that, you know, a sense of certainty that this idea that, you know, we know where the truth lies. We we haven't got all the answers, but we know where they lie. We know we're not like those idiots who, you know, right. so that, that is a very reassuring. <laughs> and I think people are very resistant to, um, to, to having that challenge. So, yeah. So, look, I'm, I'm, I'm um, yeah, I, I, I put all of these options on the table, really, you know, with, with consciousness. But, but, but having said that, I do think, I do think panpsychism, I actually, I, I might. I don't think I'd go so far as to say I believe panpsychism. That I think that would be a little bit too yeah. strong. But I do think it, in my view, it shines so much above the other options. I just feel that the other options, when you look at it plainly and without bias, I think the other options um, just have such deep difficulties. So I do think panpsychism is is the most probable view. But still, I think we should remain, you know, really cautious, you know, cautious, very cautious. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I really, really, really respect that. And, you know, what you were just saying about kind of this this um, I don't know, this religious, I don't know, uh, dogmatic materialism. I encounter I've encountered that with theism and anti-theism. And, you know, I always try to. I try to make very clear that I'm not an anti-theist. I don't believe that God. Yeah. I don't believe that God does not exist. Um, instead, I don't believe in God, and that's a big difference. And yeah. you know, it's like my materialism is kind of similar. I don't believe that reality is. I I don't believe that the material is all there is. I don't believe that the supernatural does not exist or or some metaphysical pl- I don't believe that some metaphysical plane does not exist I don't believe in a metaphysical plane yeah does yeah, that yeah. does that yeah. make sense you know and it's yeah, so it's so for me one is much more a position of humility and I right. can say what I think is more likely yeah. but ultimately it's it's just about evidence it's it's a it's about um, I don't believe in God because I haven't seen evidence of God. I, and yeah. that's it. It's that simple. It, it's, yeah. it really is as simple as, here's a claim, I don't believe you. <laughs> that's yeah. it. That is all it is. But to me, that is much more open-handed 
that is that is much more flexible and i feel like you know maybe because i was raised practically in a fundamentalist christian cult i'm i may be predisposed to being open to being too open like i feel like i'm open to any to anything <laughs> i mean i'm sure there are things right. that i'm I'm, sh- I'm sure that there are things that i'm not open to but i'm open to all kinds of crazy shit i'm open to the idea yeah. that all of reality is a is a hologram on the event horizon of a black hole. I'm open to the idea that this is all, uh, you know, a simulation. I'm open to the idea of all kinds of insanity. I'm open to the existence of God. It's To me, it's just a matter of evidence. And so in the same way, I'm open to the existence of panpsychism. I think it's a fascinating, yeah. really cool <laughs> idea. Um, yeah, no, I think that's great, yeah. So I'm, I mean, they, yeah. yeah, go on. No, no, yeah, just the, the, I think the human epistemological state, you know, epistemological meaning to acknowledge is, is very frail. And it is, uh, you know, David Hume had this thing, you know, you might think, why do philosophers waste time thinking about, you know, we could be in the matrix or you don't know for certain other people have minds or whatever. Uh, David Hume argued, you know, the great 18th century Scottish philosopher said, it's, it's, it's good for you because you realize how frail our knowledge is, how little we know. And it makes you less confident of, you know, people have these dogmatic certainties. And yeah, Hume talks about it. It's it's like he's talking about the present day. He said, people Mm. have these dogmatic convictions and they don't want to hear anything to the contrary. So they get themselves all kind of excited so they can't hear. And he says, once you realize, you know, I don't know this, I don't know whether there's a table in front of me. I don't know if I'm in the matrix or not. (laughs) This sort of makes you much more, humble about about the other things you know and uh, yeah yeah i, I don't i don't know if i'm talking to a super intelligent web bot right now <laughs> who's just you know passing yeah. the turing test with flying colors yeah. um all right well so we i have so many more questions and i've i've so many there's so much more in your book that i want to talk about but i'm afraid that we need to to wrap this up um but it has been absolutely wonderful talking to you, and I would love to have you on again, especially to talk about religious fictionalism. If you'd be oh, yeah. open to that, we could we could yeah. do that at some point. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Um, and but anyway, are are there any final thoughts? Is are is there any final wisdom that you want to impart to my to my listeners? Oh God, wisdom—that's a big challenge. Um, but I, I suppose I do. You know, I do kind of think this can kind of sound like a sort of abstract problem why the hell are we worrying about it but i do kind of think it matters because you know i think consciousness is sort of at the root of human identity you know it's fundamentally we think of ourselves and relate to each other as creatures with feelings and experiences you know it's probably consciousness is the basis of everything that's important in human existence and i'm inclined to believe obviously this is controversial but i'm inclined to believe that our our current scientific worldview doesn't have a place for it. And I, you know, I think that can lead to a real sense of alienation. I think, you know, we know we have feelings and experiences, but our official scientific worldview tells us there's just electrochemical signaling going on in our heads. And I think we know intuitively that that, that's not the same thing. And I think that intuition can have philosophical support. So I think, you know, Mm. of course, we should always be, th- I always emphasize we should be thinking uh, not what view we'd like to be true, but what view is most likely to be true. 
And I do think there's a, you know, a, a strong case for the reasons I've given for the probable truth of this view. But I also think it's, it, it's a picture of the world that's slightly more consonant with human well-being. You know, it's a picture of the world in which we mm. can understand how we fit in. Uh, um, you know, we, it's a picture of the world we can maybe feel a bit more at home in. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I think this, it's, a, it's not just an abstract problem. It's, it's also, I think, important question of how we understand the human situation, how we understand how we fit into the physical universe. From a purely pragmatic point of view, do you think that human that that we would have a greater level of well-being if people believed in something like panpsychism? I do. I, so I try to. I argue this in the final chapter. I mean, so the first four chapters are sort of just the cold-blooded case for, hmm. uh, and um, and then the final chapter says, okay, well, let's explore the implications. And one very unfair review said. Oh, there's no arguments in the final chapter, but, you know, sort of explicitly say, you know, the argument's finished. Let's explore <laughs> the implications. Um, so, but yeah, I do. I mean, I, I kind of think materialism is, is sort of pretty bleak. You know, you've just got this mm. mechanistic picture of nature and um, cold immensity of empty space. And, you know, whereas panpsychism, we are conscious creatures in a conscious universe. Um I think this is a picture we can maybe feel a bit more comfortable in our own skin. And uh, I also talk about how it might help us relate to the environment. If you, you know, if you think of a tree as just a mechanism, you'll, mm. it's hard to have any kind of warm feelings about it. You're going to think of, okay, it's valuable because it looks nice or it keeps us alive. But if, if you think a, a tree is a conscious organism, albeit of a very alien kind, then I think a tree has a kind of moral status in its own right. You know, if you see those terrible Brazilian um, forest fires, you know, if you think of them as hmm. burning of conscious organisms, you know, I think it's an extra moral dimension there. So, yeah, so I do, I do think uh, kids raised in a panpsychist universe would be hmm. uh, a little bit happier. I mean, that's just speculative. I haven't done any sure. psychological research on this. Someone should maybe, <laughs> but that uh that's I'll interesting. Tell you when my kids are a bit older. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's really really interesting. And I have so many thoughts, but I I won't pursue them right now because I need to let you go. Um, but this has been a really really fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. And where can people find you if they want to get in touch or read some of your work? Um, I'm on Twitter a lot too much. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, I need to give it a break, get some work. Philip underscore Goff says Philip with one L and Goff G O F F Foxtrot Foxtrot, um, and the website as well www.philipgoffphilosophy.com. I also have a blog, which is the worst title ever: Conscience and Consciousness, which is just impossible to type in. But that's <laughs> linked to from a website. I don't yeah. know why I chose that name. But well, I uh, I follow I follow your blog. It's great. It, you oh right, write, brilliant. You write really cool you stuff. Know. You're also um, very against neoliberalism and very uh, seems like very much a leftist. And we have that in common. Yeah, yeah. I had to get out my political ranting on. Yeah, still still getting over the recent British elections. Absolutely yeah. devastating. I'm, but I'm so sorry. It's, you got to have hope. 
Absolutely. Are you are you a Bernie fan? Or I am. Well, actually, I just I just went and voted for him this morning in the primaries. It's oh, Super right. Tuesday. Uh, as of the today is Super Tuesday, so I went and voted for Bernie. I did my oh, part. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. we can have that that's a great. conversation for another time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. um, all right, well, that is it for this show. The music, as always, is by the Jelly Rocks and Eleven D Seven. You can find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das. Special thanks goes to my patrons. You can join their number by going to uh, patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar a month or five dollars a month, you get access to extra content every week and you ensure the long life of my work. This is a production of Rock Candy Recordings and is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan! We'll see you next week. <laughs>